Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed for the week of August 22nd, talking about billions of dollars for a conservative NGO, which we'll dig into in just a second. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. How are yeah, you? Yeah, well, I'm doing all right. It's it's my daughter's first week of, of TK, so that's the biggest news. So, like, we could stop the show or continue, but it's, uh, you know, a big week for any parent. Oh, that's super exciting. Best of luck to her. I'll keep, I'll keep the team updated. No, we need that. We need that. But yeah, I'll take us into our first story. And this is kind of an interesting one. This was initially reported by the New York Times over the weekend, but it follows the saga of an electronics manufacturing mogul, Barry Steve, who's donated over $1.6 billion to a conservative political nonprofit named the Marble Freedom Trust. The Marble Freedom Trust is a 501c4, so it is a nonprofit. Uh, but it's led by a prominent conservative political operator um, that has given tons of money and is largely associated with the Federalist Society, uh, which is in turn largely credited with Nigeria increasingly conservative Supreme Court. But the long story short is that this donation of $1.6 billion represents what's believed to be the largest single individual donation to a political organization of the sort in American history. And that $1.6 billion surpasses the spending of the top 15 Republican and Democratic-aligned nonprofits during the 2020 election, just with this donation alone. So it seems to be that we're entering into a new chapter of political advocacy with 501c4, which are nonprofits groups at the center of this nexus of complicated, uh, you know, money maneuvering and then politicking. And what's your takeaway on this? I was actually a little confused as to how much the agenda of the Federalist Society may be perpetuated or pushed on by the Marble Freedom Trust, which anytime I see freedom in the title of it, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Do you know the answer to that of like the connection there after reading through this? Yeah, so I did a little digging and the article goes into it a little bit, but the Marble Freedom Trust appears to be relatively new, but is under the control of a guy named Leonard A. Leo, who, among other titles, was previously vice president of the Federalist Society and seemed to be like a guy in charge and is credited essentially with handpicking every conservative Supreme Court justice since Roberts. So Clarence Thomas actually joked that this guy was the third most powerful person in the world, which is kind of the the quiet part said out loud. But it would seem that this guy has a ton of influence. And now um, with this donation, uh, a ton of money as well for, you know, a whole host of agenda items, it would seem. Yeah, I'd say objectively, one of the things I take away is uh, based on its goal, the Federal Society has been 
wildly successful. They had a very, very long-term vision of what they were trying to do in terms of placing uh, Supreme Court justices that were Republican, Republican-leaning, conservative values first uh, into in in to play. They have succeeded beyond, you know, maybe original wildest dreams with uh, the current election of the court. And I would say one of the things that seems clear is that like that type of vision or long-term thinking is maybe what gets donors of this size to engage. And then you can sometimes look at maybe a progressive tactic, which is, you know, what's burning right now is what we're going to pay attention to and fund right now, as opposed to what is our next 10 years look like? And that's, you know, maybe an unfair broad brush, but it's a, you should consider it. You should consider it if you are in the political, political adjacent world of your nonprofit, but also positioning to large donors, right? Like what got this donor excited, interested to write a check of this magnitude is a long-term vision of size and being like, hey, how do we parlay this win? So I, I would say, you know, obviously midterms are here, but that this is beyond that is my sense that like 1.6 billion won't be spent on midterms. It's going to be spread out. So that that's where my head went. And also I just pay attention when I see the uh, dollars and the billions being sent to one organization. You're like, well, that's going to be significant. Yeah, I agree with your assessment. And also what's interesting is uh, it actually wasn't a cash donation. It was structured in a clever and albeit legal way in which it was essentially a stock donation. This guy sold his whole stake in a company to some Irish firm and then that made its way. Uh, but kind of an interesting structure there. But We'll keep an eye on this one. We're, we're, I have a feeling we're going to see more stories like this uh, in the next couple months as we approach the midterms. But I'll take us into our next story. And this one comes from GovTech.com. And the headline is that nonprofits across the country are still struggling to find workers and consistent funding, according to a new survey. So the survey was published last month by the global accounting firm UHY, which found that 40% of charities say that employment remains the highest priority as service demands remain elevated because of inflation and the lingering pandemic. So this is a thread we've been following on this podcast for a while. Of course, there was a really significant nonprofit sector employment gap. Uh, lots of folks laid off in the beginning of the pandemic as financial woes hurt, hurt nonprofits hard. Um, but now on the flip side of that is that macroeconomic pressures are making it harder to hire. Uh, employment is at a really historic low. Wages are at a historic high, proportionally. Um, these macroeconomic pressures are putting on profit, but operate, quite frankly, on, on the margins of uh, kind of financial stability uh, in a precarious place. George, what are we thinking on this one? I think it's an interesting number that this group is able to put on it and the 40% of charities saying that, you know, they have notable increase in funding while 22% reporting a decrease and looking at saying that 40% of charities have this employment, employment concern as their highest priority, which, you know, okay, you know, like every, every company would say in some respect, like what's the most important people, people first, it's how we get our jobs done. Uh, but, you know, juxtapose that with the fact that, you know, you've got, you know, pandemic, post-pandemic demands uh, 
you know, a social need combined with inflation now. And it's a, it's a question of pay and competitiveness. Uh, last year, the National Council of Nonprofits, they estimated that half a million NGO jobs were, were unfilled, right? And that's, oh, that's a lot. A third of nonprofits have job vacancies. And jobs not being done at nonprofits means people not being served in local communities. Those are directly corollary. So uh, it does note here some good news. It found that nonprofits are emphasizing new tech for budgeting and communications also help bolster collaboration between, uh, between organizations. So there may be a, an opportunity to say, what, what can we use from the, the good old tech industry innovations, efficiencies to increase output? Yeah, I think that's it. I think on the flip side is you also have people who stayed on at organizations who are now asked to be doing more with less people. <laughs> you know, uh, someone who was wearing three hats is now wearing five or six hats. Uh, and, and I think we've seen that as well, even in our, our day-to-day. So definitely something we'll continue to, to track here, but I think your points are totally valid. Yeah, I mean, we do see it. We're, uh, we're a consulting agency that works with social impact organizations, nonprofits, and our, our contacts at these organizations end up leaving and they'll go to, you know, sometimes big name uh, organization, big name for-profit institution because their skills are highly sought after. And there's a certain point where the social impact and intrinsic value, the value of the work uh, is simply not enough for the you know, the costs necessary, the money opportunity that the for-profit sector, as they sort of increase and keep up with a tight labor market uh, has in play. How long that lasts is unclear, but we see it, you're right, and with with and inside our clients. Yeah, interesting to see this play out kind of in real life, economic questions, but I want to take us to our next article, and this comes from gobankingrates.com, which Maybe sounds sketchy, but the article is legit. I did some digging for these. You know what? Before you tune out, you think it's go banking because it's all caps on the like go banking.com. It's a real article. I I promise. Now required. That's now in our our editorial guide for this this podcast. Um, But go bankingrates.com is reporting that uh, medical debt, as reported by the Kaiser, Kaiser Family Foundation, it's 41% of adults currently, which is staggeringly high. Um, but it highlights the work of a New York-based nonprofit called RIP, R-I-P, Medical Debt, which has wiped out $7.1 billion in medical debt so far, aiding almost 4 million Americans. So I'm not going to pretend to understand exactly how this works, but apparently uh, they can buy debt for a value significantly cheaper than the Worth of that debt. So for every $100 uh, donated to this charity, they can buy debt valued at $10,000. So it seems that there's this kind of like exponential ripple effect here where they can buy debt at uh, a severe discount and help a lot of people and erase a lot of medical debt. Um, and they, this, this charity has managed to eliminate $7.1 billion in medical debt so far. George, what's your take on this? And I'm just going to, I'm going to pass it to you. I, I, I'm out of my depths now. This is, 
this is pretty good. I may try to chase these folks down for a podcast because I like large systemic solutions. What I understand from this, clearly at a high level, acknowledge the number one reason an American will declare bankruptcy is health care related costs and unexpected or what have you cost coming from a uncovered medical expense, right? So, okay. And now we're aware of what happens once you have to declare bankruptcy, you know, credit ruined, unable to really leverage the full financial systems of mortgages and loans and things that you may need in the future. It, you know, it is a, a, a tough mark on your, on your resume. So what this group appears to be doing is buying distressed debt at scale. And what is uniquely different here is that it's not individuals applying in saying, here is my story. It's sadder than the next one. Make a value-based judgment and give us money instead of this other person. I have this type of cancer. It is better than that. Like it is getting away from that and it is abstracting it to the highest level, which is bundles of essentially distressed debt, right? And so they seem to be going buying bundles of at like 1%. So there's a group being like, look, we're sending these harassing messages, trying to gather, you know, this money from, you know, folks that, that can't pay their medical bills. They know they're going to, you know, probably declare bankruptcy. Those probably are going to default. And so instead, it seems like this group is saying like, hey, do you want some money instead of no money? We'll get you out of that. In exchange, I imagine, by absolving this debt at scale, they are offering sizable amounts of relief. And you look at this opportunity that they have, and it's like, you won't get as many you know, small stories because again, it's not individuals submitting to like, hey, I have, have $60,000. Can you solve this? Like, no, we're going to solve uh, $6 billion. Uh, by looking at it in these large tranches. Juxtapose that with GoFundMe, which has, you know, a power law of like 1% of the group getting funded and the rest maybe not getting funded when you put your, you know, your story of desperation publicly on GoFundMe. Most of that money, if you look on their stats, uh, is coming from people asking for healthcare-related uh, support. And so uh, I, I, I'm just so completely all in on like this conceptual direction of how you might deal with a problem like this. I think it's transferable looking at and taking a step back from the individual to uh, the groups and the systems and playing with the for-profit sector, the debt structures. And that's uh, how you can leverage higher amounts of change as shown by the fact that, you know, every hundred dollars, they can talk about relieving 10K of debt. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. I think it'd be I think it'd be great to to talk to them some more. So we'll see if we can we can follow up uh, with them and get them on the podcast. All right, George, that's a great point, and actually takes us into our next article, which comes from healthcarefinancenews.com, uh, in which the headline is "Nonprofit Hospitals Outlook Has Been Downgraded to Deteriorating um, by a Ratings Firm," and. The article states that due to labor and other macroinflationary pressures, its ratings, the uh, rating firm has survived its outlook for nonprofit hospitals and health systems to deteriorating. So we talked about the closing and financial struggles of nonprofit hospitals, particularly in areas with poor health access. But it seems that these hospitals are now on rockier uh, financial footing than ever before. And, and due to severe volume disruption and operations, even though that appears to be waning uh, as we kind of 
these there's pandemic stays um the the expenses are are still elevated um labor expenses are it says here permanently high and are at a higher level for the rest of 22 and with the well beyond so it seems that nonprofit hospitals are also feeling the brunt of these larger economic pressures yeah and it's seen across nursing shortages because of the costs there, not being able to, the erosion of margins due to increased inflation costs not seen since 1982. I can even just tell you, this is random aside, that even the, the price of CO2 has been going up and hospitals get priority on these types of, of gases, right? So compressed gas takes, uh, takes energy, takes processing, and the, the prices on these things are going through the roof. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not taking CO2 from a hospital. I was told I was back of the line because of my, my home brewing setup uh, is not priority. But looking at those prices at scale, I'm like, I, it's, you know, you're paying X and then suddenly it turns to two, three, four X when you need basic supplies to run your hospital. So, yikes. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a good point. And even something as obscure as uh-huh. compressed. <laughs> like co2 can have like real impacts like that was something i've never even thought about yeah this brought to you by random facts about me that sometimes relate to the overall systems but again nonprofit hospitals are, are are you know serving the community in a public way and so if they are struggling or deteriorating that does not mean anything good for 2023 which they talk about uh is carrying into absolutely all right how about a feel-good story to finish the podcast? What do you got? This one comes from Eater.com uh, for all the foodies out there. And it's about a really innovative nonprofit called Food Forward, which works to intercept food that otherwise would go up into landfills. This is often fresh produce. It intercepts that and actually brings it to places um, where food access is really a struggle for folks living there. So Food Forward works with 350 direct partners to coordinate food donations, 12 California counties, six states, and two tribal nations. And the tribal nation highlighted here are, uh, is the Cherokee Nation, where uh, Native American reservations are, are kind of notorious for really, really struggling with uh, fresh access or access to, to fresh food. So this makes a a world of difference there. Um, and there's a couple other organizations and, and coalitions involved uh, in this, but um, it, it says that they managed to, uh, they reached a milestone in June of uh, moving 250 million pounds of food or 1 billion servings of fresh produce. So this is no uh, small little operation here. Uh, so just wanted to shout out a really cool, innovative organization doing the the fundamental but still dire work of or the diet fulfilling that dire need of, of helping people access fresh food. Yeah, food forward. We actually had them on the podcast. Friend, friend of the pod, uh, a number of years back, incredible volunteer network, but also are, are paying attention to the entire system and, and working to uh, direct food to where it's needed. Which, again, we talk about a last mile problem and the fact that like. There's certainly enough food, just in terms of like the number. We have enough food to feed all of the people. We don't have enough logistics, transportation, efficiencies in our bureaucratic systems that deliver and move food to those in need. Uh, that's that's the thing in question. So articles uh, pointing out this type of win is exciting to see. All right, Nick. 
Thanks for helping us get get the news. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 